Well, this morning, I want to jump into Leviticus, and uh, I want to share with you some truths in Scripture. Uh, we have been in our, the, today marks our third week being in Leviticus, and I encourage you to listen to the messages online uh, if you haven't been a part of one of those, because the introductory message for this series really helps us understand some of the stuff that's going on in Leviticus. So last week, I spoke about the burnt offering. And I spoke about its significance. This week, we're going to tackle two more offerings, and they are the grain offering and the peace offering. When we get to those, uh, to the peace offering specifically this morning, I'm going to give you an alternate term for you to think about as we start to look at it. But I want to remind you, every time that we talk about something like this, I want to remind you that God's word is important for your life. Every verse has been put in the canon of scripture as a result of God's divine will and help and strength. And so when we look at it, we can look at it for what they saw it as, but we can also see the culmination of all of that history up until the moment that we live in. Um, so it's important for us to think about it like that and to not dismiss the Old Testament um, at all or to just replace it with the New Testament and say, well, that was the old stuff and God got him out of the desert and now everything's better. Jesus came, he died, he rose from the dead. And now, no, that we still need the wisdom, we still need the words, we still need the light and the truth of what we see in Scripture. Something I've talked about in the last several weeks is that we often have the temptation to look back through the lens of Christ and to try to spot him in other places throughout scripture. And sometimes he's there and sometimes he's not. I don't want that to seem like I'm dissuading what the gospel message is. What I really want to communicate to you is that all of it's important and we appreciate it for what it was and now what Christ has done. Because what he's done is truly amazing. We're going to talk about something today which might just cause you to think like you never thought before about some verses in the New Testament that you never even realized, hey, I've always wondered why he said that. We're going to see a connection between those things. And the point is this, just like Amy led in worship this morning and the way that I came up and transitioned the service, I really do believe that God is working out a plan from the beginning of our time and he is bringing it to a full close. And he's not leaving anything undone, any loose end. He is bringing this all to a culmination in history. And I can't wait to enjoy and experience that with you. So we've got to think about it holistically in that frame set, in that, that frame of mind. Um, this series, I know you, you're probably like, Pastor, why did you start a series on Leviticus? Because it's an exercise in discipline, we should read the full word of God, amen, and come to a deeper understanding of it. So having said that, jump with me to Leviticus chapter 2. We're going to have the verses on the screen this morning for you as we read a passage, but we're going to be talking in this first part about the grain offering. It says this in verse 1. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. Does anybody remember hearing the word frankincense in other places in scripture? Okay, it was a spice that they used back then. And it says in verse two, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, and he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as it's, say that word, memorial. 
as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Verse 3 says this, but the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. So if you're following along and we're reading slow enough to really comprehend this, they've taken a a large handful or a portion, okay? And it says now in verse 3, the rest of it goes to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. Verse 4 says this, when you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves, have no yeast in it of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering that's baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. Verse 9 says this, And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. Verse 11 says this, No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. In this passage of scripture, it's basically giving you some accommodations. Whether you bake it in an oven, put it in a pan, these are the things that you need to use and this is what you need to bring. This is how it's separated when it comes to the house of the Lord. The priest and his sons receive some, the Lord receives some, you get none. It's supposed to be fine flour. That would have been top dollar. It would have been something that you had to buy yourself or make yourself out of your own crops. So it was something significant to know that it was the best of the grain that was offered and it was offered to the Lord. And there was always a certain way that God wanted it done. So it was made from that choice flour with olive oil mixed in and frankincense. And that alone was to be the grain offering before God's presence. It could not be made with leaven or yeast, and it could not be made with honey. So I want you to look at verse 13. It says in verse 13 something interesting. It says, you shall season all of your grain offerings with salt. How many of you like salt? How many of you admit to eating too much salt? How many of you love putting salt on your chips at the Mexican restaurant, right? Super salty, super spicy with the salsa together. Okay, I don't know if that's where you're going for lunch, but uh, it makes me think of those salty sort of chips. It says, all of your grain offerings are to be seasoned with salt. Then it says, you shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. There's an interesting phrase there called the salt of the covenant. I want to explain to you some differences about yeast and about honey and about salt that are here in this grain offering. In, if you've ever baked anything, and I've, I don't think I've ever tried to bake a bread by hand. I've done like the quick bread stuff, but it's like, you know, you just mix a, an egg and milk in it or whatever and get it to bake. Maybe I did it wrong, whatever. But uh, if you've ever baked something, you know that yeast causes a fermentation process to happen, and it causes the bread to what? 
to rise. It causes it to rise. So this for those people would have been viewed as an alteration to what God had already given them, which is the flower, the oil, and the naturally occurring frankincense. He, he, they would have seen it as something that was added to that shouldn't be there. And it was a change agent that altered the natural process. Honey is a different story. How many of you like honey? Okay. Honey in your tea and all that kind of stuff. Honey on a biscuit, honey butter biscuit. All right. So in this idea though, you have to understand for an ancient Israelite, they saw honey as something that was delicious and sweet, but in God's law and in his system and in his word, the entire book of Leviticus talks about excretions from the body making you impure. So they would have viewed honey in their ancient sort of understanding as an excretion from the body of the bee. And they were told, don't put any of that in here. Don't defile your offering with anything you add to it. Just do what I asked you to do. Whew, that'll apply to our lives. God is still saying, you don't have to do anything extra. Just follow my rule, obey my law, and have me in your heart, and you will do well. Amen? So they would have seen that as something that tainted the offering. And other religions, I looked into this, other religions during that time were using other things that were being added to their offerings to their God. And the Israelite people were instructed to be called holy, which we learned in our first week of the series, means set apart and different from the rest. So they would have had this sort of uh, hand up approach to any of those things because they were used by people who worshiped other gods too. But when we look at verse 13 and we talk about salt, if you'll pull that verse back up, it says, you'll season all of your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. In the ancient Near East, back in those days, salt had a variety of uses, and it was used during covenant ceremonies. You can find extra biblical, that means outside of the Bible, records of them using salt for a binding agreement. Scholars note that the ancient treaties that were made involved curses. Listen closely, because we're going somewhere with this. They involved curses if you broke the treaty. Here's what would happen. The other person's land would be sowed or plowed under with salt, and it would render the land useless. So not only in ancient other religions and extra biblical sources can you see the salt of the covenant, but this is one of the three places in scripture that God mentions this, and I find it really interesting. Here's the deal. If you break covenant with God, this is, this is the understanding they would have had and we still should have. If you break covenant with God, you will receive a curse, which will then be something that makes it unusable. Whatever it is that you've covenanted about. If you've covenanted with your finances, but then you withdraw your tithes and you say this, or if you said, God, I'm going to give you my best this year. I'm going to serve in the church. And then you draw back because you get busy in those moments of building a covenant and saying, God, I'm going to do this. When we don't do it, we have 
have to understand there are things that happen. And they had a physical reminder every single time they brought a grain offering, they had to put salt in it to remind themselves of that covenant promise. It was a reminder that if the covenant was violated, something awful was going to happen. The other side of the agreement, if it was human to human, the other side of the agreement is going to come over in the middle of the night and put salt all over my ground and I will not be able to raise crops here. I won't be able to allow cows to graze here. Literally, it will be completely unusable. So it was a symbolic or a visual reminder that they should not violate their agreement. This covenant language for salt shows up in another place. And if you're taking notes, we don't have the verses for this on the screen. But Numbers 18 verse 19, it's speaking of the Israelite people. And he talks about the salt of the covenant that they should remember what God's covenant with them is. Here's something interesting too. In 2 Chronicles chapter 13 verse 5, it speaks about David having a covenant of salt with God. So biblically speaking, the phrase occurs in these relationships that are designed to last forever. Think about that. It's a binding agreement. So God wanted the Israelites to have a constant reminder of his covenant, the one that he made with them and that they made with him. Here's the application of this idea about salt. The focal point of that grain offering being salt, it was an offering remembering the permanency of the relationship between God and his people. Think about Jesus' words now that we've been talking about salt and you might be thinking about lunch. Think about Jesus' words in Matthew chapter five, verse 13, when he says as part of his long sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except for to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The salt no longer being good gives a notion to these people in Jesus' day of a violation of the covenant that he made with Israel, not on God's behalf but on their behalf. So when Jesus is preaching to the Jews, I want you to like connect these dots. When he's preaching to the Jews in a land or an area called Judea, he is preaching to those who in their mind, they're still in exile. They are now living under Roman law and Roman rule in this area. All the tribes that were spread out years and years ago in exile have not all returned. And so he's thinking in those terms and they're thinking in those terms. The return from exile, according to the Old Testament, always included all of the tribes. So they would have had this thought because every prophecy in the Old Testament about God bringing back his people said, I'm going to bring them all back. I'm not going to leave them out. I'm going to keep my promise. So if he's speaking to one piece of that whole group of people, they would have had in their mind that old system and everything that they read and study about the salt of the covenant and have heard his words in a different light than we've ever thought of them when he says, you are the salt of the earth. And so... At this time, they would have understood salt used in offerings for that binding agreement. In fact, Mark chapter 9, verse 50 says this, salt is good, amen, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? How can an element like salt be revitalized? It can't. 
If it's, if it's representative of the covenant that gets broken with God, it's not on us. We have to depend on an external source to gain more salt. So can you make it salty again? You literally can't. Then Jesus says this, which you may have read and may have thought about, but he says something very interesting in Mark chapter nine. He says, have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. In other words, stand firm to your commitment. In another place close to that passage, he says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Let your word be true and faithful to the people you're in relationship with. Let you be the salt in that relationship to always be reminded to live with integrity and to have that understanding. There's something else important there in the grain offering that I want to highlight before we go to the next, and that is this. That memorial portion is really important. When it says that memorial portion was taken and put on the altar so that it would be burned, we have to understand that reminding ourselves of what God has done helps us be confident of what he is going to do. So when I take a moment, instead of being grumpy and down in the dumps about stuff today, but if I take a moment with a good attitude and think through all the times the Lord has come through in my life, I not only have courage and resolve, but my faith is lifted in this present moment and for the moments that I'm facing in the future, because I can remember. There's a place in the Old Testament when it says that they set up an altar of remembrance. They basically took 12 giant stones and set them up on the bank of a river. And they said, hey, why are we doing this? And their leader tells them, because one day when your kids and your grandkids pass this spot, they'll say, hey, what's that? And you'll be able to remind them, this is the place that the Lord delivered us. He did an amazing thing here. And it'll just enliven their faith in that moment to be able to have the confidence for themselves. Amen? So we need reminding. How many of you have ever said to somebody else, remind me? right? We've all done that 100% of the time, right? 100% of us, we have all done that and said, hey, remind me to tell you the story later. Remind me to whatever, because we need reminding. We've probably prayed that other people would be reminded about like Mother's Day. No, we, we want them reminded of things, right? And so when we think about this, we need reminding and they got it every time they put the salt into that grain offering. So I want you to think about that this morning and what they would have looked for when they heard Jesus' words in the New Testament saying, you are the salt of the earth. They would have understood it was talking about that covenant relationship. Let's go to the peace offering. The peace offering is something that I'm going to encourage you to think about in a way uh, which does not involve the word peace necessarily, but we'll say well-being offering. And it's found in Leviticus chapter 3. We're going to read a short passage passage, sorry, of scripture there this morning and talk about this peace offering or well-being offering. In verse 1 of chapter 3, it says this, if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering... 
as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood, on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Verse 6 says this, If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. Now, you might be thinking, this is a little gruesome. They're talking about cutting the entrails out, pulling the fat off of the thing. If you've ever, you know, cleaned an animal and prepared it for food, you know that this, I mean, you know, some people get a little squeamish. They were doing this all the time. And this was about something which we call in our English translations peace. But really what it was, was it was an offering of thanksgiving for peace that was already present. If you read deeper into that whole section, you'll understand they are not trying to appease God by saying, hey, hey, hopefully you take that. I'm backing away before you kill me. And you'll also, if you think about this, the burnt offering, the first one, the grain offering and the peace offering, we're not talking about sin in any of these three moments. No sin has been committed in any of these three situations. It's not mentioned because there's a relationship already present. And here's what is happening with the fat, okay? How many of you enjoy a good porterhouse, okay? Something with a little fat on it, right? Something that's got some good marbleization, all right? Some marbling on the meat. That fat is tasty and delicious. You may gag, I enjoy it. Back then, fat was prized, It belonged to the Lord. Are you getting this concept? The best flour, right? The expensive spice, that's brought to the Lord. In the burnt offering, it's again an animal without blemish, without spot on it, can't be maimed, missing an eye, have a disease, any issue. It's got to be the most perfect one that you wish you could keep for yourself, but you give to the Lord instead in obedience. This is some powerful stuff. So in the sacrificial system, this fat was considered the best part across the board. So God receives the best part. And they would even go into the, into the organs that looked like they had fat attached to them, fatty surfaces, and they would pull that off as well to offer all of it to God, to not keep a single piece. There's an issue that you should be aware of when you start to look further in the books that are in the Old Testament. There is a man who has sons who are serving in the high priesthood. I'm going to let you let it be a mystery and you figure it out for next week. There's a man who it says he is his sons are stealing out of the pot and taking what belonged to God. Those sons did not last long. They wanted the fatty portion. They wanted the good stuff and God said you can't have it. God deserves the best. The reminder for you and I should be that question in our minds. Not just does God deserve our best as it regards like are we raising our family in a way that pleases him, but are we truly giving him the best of our day, the best of our money, the best of our time, the best of our talent? Are we truly prioritizing him in that way? Because that's what they were forced to do. And guess what? Nobody could 
like slither in there with the least of the best and show up because everybody was watching. And they would have known, Crystal, you brought that crippled little lamb in here. You know better, girl. God's going to kill. They, they would have, but no, but my prized possession, I left it at home. They would have understood and all of them would have been in harmony in this, which causes me to think about those Israelite thoughts back then transferring into the days when the Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost. And it says, and they had all things in common and shared everything for the benefit of one another. They were all in each other's business and life, trying to help out and bless and be a blessing to others. So understand this about the peace offering. The offerer is not making peace with God. He already has it because of a covenant promise that God has made, that Israel has entered into. And the point of the sacrifice itself is to celebrate something that already exists. There's a lot of people in this world that are lacking peace with God. We, who are his kids and his children, already live in that present, perfect peace. The Bible calls it a peace that passes all understanding. We live in the peace knowing that God always, always comes through, never fails, never has, and never will. This meal is now shared. So if you've paid attention to the, the, the linear thought, the burnt offering, everything's given. When you get to the grain offering, the priest and his sons get to keep some. God gets the rest, okay? Now we come to the place of having the well-being or the peace offering, and it's a shared communion, community-style meal between the giver or the worshiper, the priest, and essentially with God himself. Now, I know that we know now, and they most likely knew back then, that God doesn't eat or need food, right? That he doesn't have a stomach that needs to be filled, that he gets hangry, okay? How many of us do that? Uh, I got hangry the other day myself. Thank God the Lord rescued me. But um, we all have those moments, but we understand that about the character and nature of God, that he doesn't need food, But we, in the Old Testament, the Israelites, needed to give what they needed in order to see what God would provide. And we still practice that today through giving of our tithes and our offerings, through serving in the church, through blessing one another in compassion and that sort of stuff. We still see that same idea at work today. So it's something that God gave us that truly belongs to him, that we're now giving back to him. And in this moment of celebrating this Thanksgiving of thank you, God, for the peace in this relationship that I no longer have to worry. I know you're a covenant-making and keeping God that you've never broken a promise. I'm gonna sit down with the priest and enjoy a meal. Think of it this way. The personal fellowship of the Lord's table what we call communion. When we celebrate communion, we've done it different ways, but it involves a wafer or a piece of bread and a cup of juice. When you think about that, you need to think about the fact that they were having a communion-style meal as a result of this peace offering. Back in those days, they were already exemplifying that. So then you can hear the words of Jesus with a fresh perspective when he's sitting at the table during the Last Supper. And he says, take and eat, this is my body. Take and drink, this is my blood poured out for you, the new covenant. These Jewish boys who were such a ragtag bunch, I know some people like that, were in Jesus' party 
And he's talking to them. They would have grown up knowing the Levitical system, the laws, and everything. They would have known that peace with God in a covenant relationship involved the communion meal with the priest to celebrate what God has done. And they would have heard that differently than we hear it when we just say, hey, will you join us at the Lord's table? So it commemorates the sacrifice of the Messiah, not an animal that you bring. Amen? I'm so thankful that we don't have to do that any longer. The life giver gives his blood in the, in the sacrifice that Christ made, and he takes up his life again. This is, this is a powerful thought to a Jewish person who would have understood that sacrificial system. So after the cross, there remains no more sacrifice needed for sin. Never again. There's no sacrifice that you have to bring and end its life in order to bring it to the Lord. I have received, as a priest, I should say, uh, as a pastor, I've received a meat offering uh, of someone who uh, killed a deer and gave me the profits, okay, gave me the side, and I was able to make some sausage with it. That's wonderful. And if you want to bring a meal to this priest, you can do so, okay? But no other sacrifice, no other animal needs to die as a result of trying to maintain a relationship with God. Something does have to die, though. It's not an animal. It's you. Somebody say, mm-hmm. <laughs> It's you and I. Because we must decrease that he would increase in our spiritual selves. So listen to this. Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm wrapping up. The worship team can come join me. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul is referencing for the people then this language that comes out of Leviticus and their system there that, and he's telling them that Christ loved us and he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice and it was permanent our relationship with God can now be permanent. The sacrificial system is done away with. We're no longer dependent on certain procedures. You have to even understand this. There was moments of ignorance in the Old Testament when they didn't understand that God was truly omnipresent. They really believed he lived near that house and he came down when they saw the fire and the smoke. They were developing their understanding of that. But then I love what David says when he says, my God is an ever-present help in a time of trouble. David knew he's with me in the cave when I'm running for my life. David knew that he was with him wherever he found himself. He says this, if I go up to the clouds, you're there. If I would go down to the darkest pit, you'd be there with me. He understands and comes to grips with that. But back then they didn't understand that. So Christ has finished this entire chapter and now we're reading a different story entirely because he has become the sacrifice that every single one of us needed. And this was God's plan from eternity past. He always keeps his promise. So with that in mind, I want you to stand. I want you to think about this this morning. I want you to ask yourself this question. Are you giving the best of all of you to God? 
This is not your pastor trying to guilt you or say, you're spending only 17 minutes, you got to spend 30. No, there's nothing like that legalism here. But I'm telling you, I believe with all my heart that the Holy Spirit can speak a word to you that might apply somehow, some way to this message today. And that question has been invading my headspace as I prepared for this. Am I giving God my best? Sure, I get paid to be here and I go up and I work on a message and I do things to develop ministry ministries in the church. But beyond that, am I going above and beyond? Am I really showing God what I think he's worth? Or am I just getting the job done? That's my own personal conviction and thought. But I think about my time, my talent, my money. I'm going to do something that's a little bit, I hope you don't think it's sacrilegious, but I've adapted Ricky Bobby's quote. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So you think it's sacrilegious. No, you're laughing because you can't wait to hear it. And that is, he says in the movie, when, when he's talking to the reporter, he says, if you ain't first, you're last. And I began to think about that quote, and I really believe the Holy Spirit helped me feel that in my own heart. If for no one else in this room, if God ain't first, he's last. He gets shuffled way down the list when he's not first. That's why he's telling us, I'm a jealous God. I want all your attention, all your affection, all of you. He wants that. And the second question is this, is do you have peace with God? Maybe you're at a place where you say, I do believe that I have a relationship with God, but there's something that's been a stumbling block in my path or something that I've done that I shouldn't have done that I believe has caused some distance in my relationship. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid. And we still do. (laughs) So maybe there's something to that, but maybe you're here today and you've never had true, authentic peace with God. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter five, it says this, therefore, since we've been justified by our faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Peace with God can only come through Jesus Christ and having faith in him. So as they do this last worship song, and before we say goodbye, we're gonna have a special gift for the mothers. So if you'll just stay with us for one moment after the worship song, I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Maybe you already sense it and know it. Confess it before the Lord. Tell him that you love him. Tell him you're thankful for the peace he's given you and how different your life is today. Whatever it is, I want you to respond as they worship and they lead us today. Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would draw every person's heart to the place of acknowledging you and today recognizing you and asking you what you're speaking to them. And Lord, I pray that you would speak something to every individual who hears this message in Jesus' name.